continuing, continuing our sermon series on listening today. And if um, you have looked on the church website or you looked at the fall guide, um, another speaker was scheduled to be with us today. Unfortunately, because of health reasons, uh, had to cancel. But I'm delighted to tell you that Ben Davis, one of our current seated elders, Steve mentioned him earlier, Ben is going to be coming and bringing the word of God to us. Ben and his wife, Lauren, uh, and their two children, two young children are members of Eastminster. And Ben, thank you for coming today. So let's welcome Ben Davis. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Good morning, everyone. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Our primary, primary text will be from Isaiah 52, verses seven through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all of the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then from St. John's Gospel, chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The word of God for the children of God. You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It's a story sketched in our historical imagination. As the ancient historian Herodotus tells us, it was the first invasion of Greece by the Persian Empire in 490 BC. Bombarded and grossly outnumbered, the noble Athenian general Metaldes took command of the hastily assembled army. His unorthodox strategy was to weaken the center of the Greek army to better strengthen its outer flanks. Shuffling his troops here and there, shifting the balance of power from the center to the margins led to mass confusion among the Persians. In the throes of chaos, the Persian ranks began to break, allowing what became known as the Marathon Men to crash through their center ultimately winning a decisive victory for Athens. As the story goes, the young messenger Phidippides ran 25 miles to Athens to deliver the good news of the Persian defeat, only after to collapse and die of physical exhaustion. Inspired by the legend, the 19th century English poet Robert Browning wrote a tribute to Phidippides, of which the penultimate section reads, Unforeseeing one, yes, he fought on the marathon day. So when Persia was dust, all cried, to Acropolis, 
Run, Phidippides, one race more. The mead is thy due. Athens is saved. Think Pan, go shout. He flung down his shield, ran like fire once more. And the space twixt the fennel field and Athens was stubble again, a field which a fire runs through. Till in he broke, rejoice, we conquer, like wine through clay, joy in his blood bursting his heart. He died, the bliss. While different in significant ways, the story of the battle of Marathon and the apocryphal legend of Pheidippides helps to shed some light on the text of Isaiah 52. At its heart, Isaiah 52, seven through 10, is about an announcement of good news about a battle that's being won. Here, the prophet is giving the battle-worn people of Judah hope that their covenant-making God, Yahweh, is coming back to rescue them from exile, just as he had always promised he would. But friends, to start here in the middle of the story is to get ahead of ourselves a bit. To properly understand why the announcement of God coming back to Zion is truly good news, we must broaden our lens and look briefly at what has come before. A good starting place is Genesis 15, 17 and 18, where Yahweh makes a covenant with Abraham, promising to bring his ancestors into the great land where they will flourish. If you remember the story, it's kind of odd. God commands Abraham to bring him a heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he tells him to cut the animals into two, dividing them opposite one another. At nightfall, as Abraham is in a deep sleep, God passes through the animal carcasses in a flame and a smoking pot. In this remarkable and bewildering act, not only does God memorialize his covenant with his servant Abraham, but God also places the demands of the covenant on himself. You see, in ancient cultures, it would have been Abraham who would have passed through the carcasses, symboling that he was on the lower rung of the ladder. It was up to him to keep the commands of the covenant Instead, it is God himself, Yahweh, who passes through the carcasses, saying that no matter what happens, he will put the demands of the covenant on himself. No matter what, no matter what happens with Abraham or his ancestors, no matter how wayward or disobedient they are, God will always stay true to his promise to Abraham. God will never abandon his people. Fast forward to the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy 27 through 30, where God puts the terms of the covenant before Moses and the people of Israel as they are about to move into the land. God is unequivocal. Failure in obedience to the call to be a light to the nations will result in death and exile destruction, whereas faithful obedience to the way God has made for Israel will result in life. If you remember on the lips of Moses, he says a word from God to the people of Israel, I lay before you today life and death. 
Choose life. As the text tells us, God already foretells of Israel's disobedience and its fateful consequences. Death and exile to a foreign land. As Deuteronomy 27 reads, the Lord will bring you, that is Israel, and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. But not too far after this ominous word, God recalls his covenant faithfulness, that is, his promise he made to Abraham to keep a people for his name. And when all these things come upon you, the text reads, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you this day with all your heart and all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion upon you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. From this point forward, like every great drama, we see the life and the fortunes of Israel rise and fall, rise and fall, and then rise and fall again. Just after these passages, we move into the book of Joshua, where Israel begins to take hold of the land that Yahweh has promised for them, but not without difficulty and disobedience. From there, we move on to the prophet Samuel, who then anoints Israel's first human king, King Saul. He starts out well, but very quickly falls from grace. And then we move on to the high point of Israel's monarchy, King David, who is anointed, but who himself runs into trouble. And from David onward, it's just a slow decline into idolatry and sinfulness, where David's children ultimately divide Israel as they serve and look to other gods besides Yahweh. The northern kingdom falls first. Then Judah, the southern kingdom, where Yahweh's presence had dwelt in the temple, falls into the hands of the Babylonians. God leaves the temple. The temple is destroyed and the people are taken into a foreign land, just as God said would happen in Deuteronomy. As we get to our text in Isaiah, the people of Judah have spent several decades in exile in Babylon, waiting on God to act, waiting on God to fulfill his promise to restore them, to rescue them, to save them from death and bring them back under his care. If you remember the Psalm 137, where Israel in the midst of exile says, how can we sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land? All hope seems lost. Despair is growing each and every year. But in the midst of it, right to the very end, we hear the prophet Isaiah burst forward with these resounding words. Hear them again. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Just as exile had been foretold because of Israel's faithlessness, so had God's plan of final rescue for his people because of his faithfulness. Like Pheidippides, the prophet Isaiah is running to his people to announce the good news, the gospel of God's return to Zion. The long night of battle against Israel's enemies has been won. God will save his people and reign over them as their one rightful king. Therefore, as the prophet tells them, they are to rejoice and sing as their long-awaited hopes are finally being fulfilled. What's odd about this passage and what it portends is not that God is making good on his promise to rescue his people. The oddity, rather, is how God goes about doing it. You see, the people of Israel had anticipated that when God would act, at their moment of despair asking if God would act, then it would look a certain way. Namely, they would come back into the land. They would rebuild the temple and practice Torah faithfully. They would restore the monarchy. And the Shekinah glory of God's presence would once again fill the Holy of Holies. And Israel would live in ultimate peace and harmony over the nations. But as the story of Scripture unfolds, the gospel, the good news of God's return, of God's advent to Zion, looks radically different than anyone was expecting. For as St. Paul tells us, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And again, St. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Israel's long-awaited hopes had come to an end. God had finally acted, but in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate son of God. How odd of God to act in this way. Now we know that the announcement of God's return to his people was always pointing to the arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, Israel's one true Messiah and Lord, born of the virgin in the royal line of David. In Jesus, Yahweh God put on the garment of human flesh to live with his people. That is, to comfort them, to laugh and to cry with them, to eat and drink and share conversation with them, to learn about their greatest hopes and their most profound fears, their deepest longings, to pray with them and for them, to correct them when they were in error, ultimately to love them and to demonstrate this love to suffer and to die for them. 
to show them what it means to live well in the kingdom of God and to know and live the very fullness of human life with them so that in and through his own flesh, we, each one of us sitting here this morning, might, as John says, behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. This is scandalous good news, the scandalous good news of the incarnation, that God became man so that we might become like him, and that each of us would be made fully alive in and through the flesh of Jesus Christ. Often Christians think of salvation, when they think of salvation, they think of the crucifixion. This isn't wrong, of course, but it's very incomplete. The crucifixion has the power it does because of the incarnation. Hundreds, if not thousands, of ancient Mediterranean Jews were killed by crucifixion in ancient Rome. In that regard, Jesus' death was not unique. The difference, however, is that in Jesus, we proclaim the mystery that God himself is hanging on the cross, suffering in our place, dying our death. We proclaim that God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We proclaim the mystery that God in Christ lived the full range of the human life, experienced the full range of human knowledge and emotion and lived it perfectly. That the second Adam put on the flesh of the first Adam and undid his sin. That as Israel's Messiah, he relived Israel's life perfectly. Going to war against the principalities and the powers, not just on the cross, but in his very life. So that he might turn human nature inside out. And that we might be made fully alive in him. As St. Chrysostom said, The unassumed is the unhealed, meaning that if God did not fully take on the fullness of humanity, then our salvation is for naught. But what we know from Scripture is that God did take on the fullness of humanity. Every molecule, every atom, every inch of the human experience, every inch of the human life, every inch of human flesh, he assumed to himself so that we might be saved, we might be healed and be made one in union with him. The incarnation and crucifixion go together as two sides of the same paradoxical coin. That God would finally return to his people, as Isaiah tells us, was perhaps no surprise to the people of Judah, although their hope surely waned as their waiting grew longer. That God would return to his people in the flesh of Jesus, however, that he would be born of a peasant virgin girl in a shabby little town, that he would live a life of joy among sinners, the poor, the destitute and unclean, that his coronation ceremony as Israel's king would be a crucifixion, and that he would reveal his ultimate purpose by raising Jesus from the dead is likely not what Isaiah's first audience had in mind when they heard the good news of God's arrival to Zion to reign over his people. 
But this is exactly how God did it. This is how God reigns over his people. This is how God comforts his people. And it is the good news that each one of us who calls on the name of Jesus believe in and proclaim today. Friends, Advent is about maintaining a posture of hope in a season of waiting. It's about being open to God's arrival in the world, in your life, in a new, fresh, and surprising way. And it's about being refreshed and even scandalized by the good news about what God has done in the incarnation of Jesus. In closing, I want to speak to you in a direct and even a personal way for a moment. It's been impressed upon me over the course of the last few months that there are many people in our congregation who are in a season of waiting. And not just any waiting, a season of difficult waiting. Some are experiencing poor health. They've received news of difficulty in their health, of cancer, things like that that have brought them to their knees in moments of despair. Others are going through difficult times in their marriages. They're going through times, they're at a place where they have, seems like they've reached the end, where they have fought and fought and nothing seems to be better. Still others, are in tumultuous relationships with our children. Perhaps they've made life decisions that have caused us great anguish. Still others of us maybe are facing difficult decisions in business, or our career, financial difficulty. We're questioning the trajectory of our life and wondering, have everything I have done been for nothing? Friends, I don't know why some of us and even our very church seems to be in a difficult season. And just speaking personally, this year, especially the last seven months, have been the most difficult of my entire life. This has been a season fraught with stress and anxiety, and I can't tell you how many sleepless nights. In this time, I can only speak for myself in this, but in this time of immense difficulty, God has been doing a work in my life. He has been slowly stripping me of my idols, in particular the idol of control, of thinking that in some way God needs me to accomplish his purpose in the world that I am someone special, that I am someone clever or gifted or talented enough where God can become an afterthought in my life. Being stripped of your idols, of the things that can give you a false sense of comfort can be a very uncomfortable, if not painful thing. And I don't want to pretend to know why you may be in the place you're in or what God is doing in your life. But my word for you this morning, for each of us this morning, for myself this morning, 
is that God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us. As all of our texts this morning point. I can say this with absolute confidence, that the slow turns of God's timing and the patient operations of his grace are how God is refining and pressing us into the image of Jesus. That he must lay us bare, that we must become malleable in his hands, that we can be further pressed into the image, the indelible image of his son Jesus. It's become common among contemporary preaching to give practical application at the end of the sermon. I'll let you judge whether this is practical or not. But my word of exhortation for you this morning is not to move, but to wait. Not to act, but to receive. Not to speak, but to hear the word of promise, the word of the gospel, of the return of God in Jesus Christ, which is given for you. That God has not abandoned us, but has come and will come again in Jesus Christ. This is truly good news. And it is news that we receive as a gift and that we rejoice in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for this day which you have made. I pray that each and every one of us would rejoice and be glad in it. We're thankful, Father, that when everything is taken away from us, what we have is you and your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sweet communion with the triune God which is good news for each and every one of us. That by your spirit, you're drawing us further up and further into your triune life. Father, we are thankful that you are an odd God. You do odd things. Things that we do not expect. Things that surprise us. Things that even scandalize us that you would arrive in the flesh in a humble baby, in a humble way. And through that, through a life lived perfectly among the poor, dying and rising, through all of this, you would accomplish your purposes to redeem the world and each one of us sitting here today. Father, we stand in awe and in incomprehension at your ways, at your wisdom, your ultimate decrees, and the fact that you, out of just sheer grace, have brought each and every one of us here this morning to hear your word, to sing praises to you, to be drawn further and deeper into your life. 
to taste you, to hear you, to see you in your glory. Father, we thank you for these things. We stand in awe and in wonder at who you are and what you've done. We praise you, Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.